Let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, we give you our thanks, and we pray that you would bless us now as we open up the words of eternal life, and we pray that we would receive their truths with faith and love, lay them up in our hearts, and practice them in our lives. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, just one more week uh, detour from the Ten Commandments. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 14 through 21, but my sermon will cover verses 17 to 21. 2 Corinthians 5, the scripture reading will be verse 14 to 21, but my sermon will cover 17 to 21. So 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, this is God's word. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. May God bless the reading of his holy word. When Saul of Tarsus was converted on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, a Christian named Ananias who lived in Damascus was commanded by Jesus himself to go to Saul of Tarsus. Ananias objects to this in Acts chapter 9 and says to Jesus, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Now listen closely to what he says next. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. Suffer indeed. Paul's sufferings began almost immediately and continued for the next 30 years of his life. Isn't it amazing? The man who had orders from the chief priests and letters from the chief priests to bind and kill Christian people in Damascus, to inflict suffering on them, By the time he gets there, he's the one that's going to have suffering inflicted on him now for their cause. In Haley's Bible handbook, it chronicles all of Paul's sufferings. Listen to these. They plotted to kill him in Damascus when he got there. He he was going to be killed for being a Christian once he got there in Acts 9.24. And again in Jerusalem in Acts 9.29. They drove him out of Antioch, Acts 13.50. They attempted to stone him at Iconium in Acts 14. They did stone him and left him for dead at Lystra in Acts 14. In Philippi, they beat him with rods and put him in stocks. In Thessalonica, the Jews and the rabble tried to mob him 
They drove him out of Berea. They plotted against him at Corinth. In Ephesus, they almost killed him. In Corinth, shortly after he had written this epistle, they again plotted his death. In Jerusalem, they again would have made a quick end of him if he had not been rescued by the Roman soldiers in Acts 22. He was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years and for two more years in Rome. Besides all this, there were unrecorded beatings, imprisonments, shipwrecks, and endless deprivations of every kind. And finally, he was taken to Rome to be executed as a criminal in 2 Timothy 2, verse 9, end quote. And yet, in the midst of all of that, when Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi, it says they were singing hymns together in prison. Singing hymns in the midst of all of that. He was a man who was filled with the grace of God and filled with confidence in God's sovereign plan over all. And that plan for Paul included being conformed to the image of Christ and being made more like him and thus receiving much hatred from the world just as Jesus had received and as many Christian people had received from Paul before he was converted. The road indeed was narrow and difficult to say the least for this man. And you know what this caused him to do frequently in his letters? He frequently breaks from the troubles, breaks from the problems, breaks from the church issues, and goes on these glorious meditations about going to heaven. And goes into these glorious meditations about the gospel. That caused him to meditate upon death and meditate on the gospel of God's grace constantly as he suffered. The gospel occupied his thoughts. It was the meditation of his heart through all of those beatings and imprisonments and riots and rocks that hit him in the head and everything else. And dear ones, that is why he endured all of this so graciously. The gospel was constantly in his heart. It was not because he was such a tough guy with an iron constitution. This was a man who came to see clearly. He saw clearly he was once on a fast track to hell. He saw he was lost but found. He had been blind, but now he could see. And it meant so much to him to know Christ. He described it to the Galatian churches, Galatians 1, 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He saw it as what pleased God. God separated me from my mother's womb and raised me up to be a minister of his gospel. When he wrote the young pastor Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, he says. Paul knew it was grace and it was only grace it was pre-creation, unconditional, electing grace that was the reason he was a follower of Christ. He knew he was the special object of God's love and mercy and kindness, just like all Christians know that. True Christians do not believe that they're going to go to heaven because they're good. 
True Christians know they're going to heaven because Jesus Christ was good, indeed perfectly righteous in their behalf. True Christians know they're going to heaven because Christ bore in his body the divine justice due to them on the cross. True Christians trust solely, completely, and only in the finished work of Christ who redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse in our behalf. True Christians are trusting that Jesus' personal righteousness, his whole life of law-keeping, his whole life of keeping all of God's commandments, where he never cursed, never took the Lord's name in vain, never broke the Sabbath day, was never sexually impure, never coveted, never complained, never stole, never lied. That perfect life of righteousness is imputed, credited to my legal account before the judgment of God. And that's why I know I have eternal life. I don't hope I'm going to heaven. When, when Christians say, do you, do you have hope of going to heaven? It is a certain expectation. It is an infallible assurance of faith based upon the divine truth of the promises of God in salvation. I know I have eternal life because I am clothed in his divine righteousness. And after writing so much about suffering in 2 Corinthians, I mean, the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul chronicles all these different things he suffered, all the, the beatings and the shipwrecks, and he goes through all of this up to the point there in chapter 5, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden in chapter 5, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and for the benefit of all future ages who would read this wonderful chapter of God's Word, he writes about death and the the saving, reconciling work of Jesus Christ and the new creation that all believers become in Christ when they repent and believe in him. And so I want to say as a point of application before we walk through this glorious passage, often it's in our moments of greatest pain that become our moments of deepest intimacy with the Lord Jesus and the moments of our greatest joy contemplating heavenly life free from this world and its trials and tears. I want to encourage you to think of it like that. When you go through the seasons that are the darkest times in your life and you find yourself sitting there and your mind suddenly switches gears to, I can't wait till this is all over. I can't wait to go to heaven. I can't wait until I stand before God clothed in his righteousness, his cross having paid for all my sins, to hear that glorious verdict, you are one of mine, you're justified, not because you're righteous or good, but because my son has done all this for you. Come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. Isn't it in those moments of pain and hardship that the world doesn't seem as attractive to us as it does when things are good, right? Back up a little bit. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16. This is one of these things where I thought, I got to read a little bit of context and I kept backing up and backing up and backing up. I was like, I'm going to end up reading half the letter. So this is as far back as I backed up. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16. After talking about all the suffering, he says in verse 16 of chapter 4, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction. Okay, time out, time out for a second. How many of you would describe getting beaten over and over again, shipwrecked and prison, tortured as a light affliction? <laughs> I love it. The, our light affliction, verse 17, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 
While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. Your trials, your suffering, the heartache, the difficulties, all of it, the stress, it's temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And then look at the opening verses of chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, meaning our bodies, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Verse 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And you know, those that cross over the line and go on into heavenly glory when they die in Christ, their faith becomes sight. They don't need to walk by faith because they see now. They see the Lord. They see him as he really is, free from sin, and they enter into that blessedness of joy for the rest of eternity. See what Paul's doing there in that passage? He's meditating on what is to come at death. Death's a defeated foe for the Christian. Jesus has abolished death, we're told. Yes, we still have to die, but in the age to come, when Jesus returns, we will be raised up in glory, immortal, free from sin, justified before God, forgiven completely, and made fully blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Is it not amazing to you how earthly bound our thoughts can so often be. We forget where we're going. Peter even says that when you fall into sin and when you, when you go off the tracks, he, he is, has become unfruitful and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his past sins. How do we forget that? When we stare into the face of suffering and sorrow, we're, we're forced to look at the effects of sin in the people that we love and in our own hearts. When we do that a lot, we can turn very dark in our thoughts and feelings. 2 Corinthians 5, the whole chapter, is a glorious lifeline for suffering Christians. It's also a goldmine of gospel for unbelievers to think about. Are you saved? Are you saved? Do you have that same assurance that Paul has when he can say, when this tent, when my body dies, I have a home eternal in the heavens. I know that I'm going there. Do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Are you reconciled to God? Do you have the gift of eternal life? You know, Paul rejoiced so often, as we should, in the death of his old self. He rejoiced constantly in his letters at the death of the old person that he once was. Romans 6.6, 6, he rejoiced in it and said, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be the slaves of sin. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Colossians 3.3, for you died, he says to the Colossian believers. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That we are new creations in Christ was a precious truth for this former murderer and persecutor of Christian people. And I want to tell you all something. Even if you were saved in the womb as a covenant child, all of us who know Christ must rejoice 
that we are new creations in the Lord. You realize that you were not conceived as a new creation in Christ. You were deceived as a depraved, rebellious son or daughter of Adam. And if you are a believer, even if you were born again at that very young, tender age while in the womb or while you were a toddler, you were made a new creation in Christ too. Now look at the verses leading up to our passage again. Look at verses 14 through 16. This is glorious stuff. For the, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And what's he talking about there? Jesus' death for the church, for the Corinthian believers. Verse 15, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Verse 16, therefore from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. And what he's saying there is that once a person understands who they really are as a Christian, the special object of God's eternal love and mercy, a new creature in Jesus Christ, the way that that person will then look at every other human being on earth will radically permanently change. The way you see everybody changes forever when you become a Christian. We don't see people according to the flesh anymore. What that means is we don't care anymore if you're wealthy or poor, healthy or unhealthy, famous or unknown, successful in the eyes of the unbelieving world or not. It doesn't matter. The only thing that really matters about you is this. Are you reconciled to God or not? And I hope sincerely, when you listen to the news and you hear there was another attack, all those poor people that keep getting killed over there in, in, uh, in Israel and the areas around it, I hope you're thinking, I wonder if they knew Christ. I wonder if they were reconciled to God. The people that we know that die, when you hear about deaths in this area, you hear about people that die here. When you hear about disasters and fires in Texas and this many people we know for sure have been, have been killed by this. Do you think, I wonder if they were reconciled to God? Because at the end of the day, nothing else really matters about them, does it? Nothing else really matters. Are you reconciled to God? Are you a new creation in Christ? Did you die with Christ? Who lives in you today? How do you see the people around you? Are they rich or poor? Are they successful or unsuccessful? Are they athletic? Are they weak? Are they strong? Are they tough? Are they what? what, what how do you see people? Do you see people as those who either know God and have eternal life or those who are lost in their sins and under God's eternal condemnation? The man that died on the cross, naked, nailed to a cross, and repented in his final moments with nothing, no possessions, nothing, he died wealthier than the wealthiest person on earth because he had Christ. He had forgiveness. He had the one thing that really matters about your life. Look at the passage here. I've given you a four-point outline there in your bulletin. That was all, that was all introduction. Sorry about that. Um, but here, here's the... So now I'm going to start preaching. Um, so look at uh, the four-point outline. It's basically one verse, two verses, one verse, one verse. New creatures in Christ. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. All Christians are Christ's ambassadors. And then the heart of the gospel, the substitutionary atonement. So look at point number one. Look, you see verse 17 there in your Bible? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Why do we regard no one according to the flesh anymore? As it says back in the previous part. Why do we regard no one in worldly terms anymore? Because if we are believers, we ourselves are new creations. We are new creatures in Christ. And the Greek there is very emphatic. It really just says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. It doesn't actually even say he is a new creation. It just says new creation. Kind of katissus. New creation. It's like Paul is just throwing it out there with a bunch of exclamation marks. If you're in Christ, you are brand new now. A new creature. As I said, nobody is conceived as a new creation. We are conceived as sinners in rebellion against God. And even if you were born again by God's spirit as a covenant child, while you were still in the womb before you were born, it was still every bit as dramatic and glorious as the person who lived for 30 years in rebellion against God and then was born again. Every time we hear a testimony from someone who becomes a communicant member of the church, every time we hear someone say this, they're almost like ashamed. Well, my, my testimony is not very exciting. Mine's not very dramatic. My parents are Christians. They took me to church. They told me about Jesus. I've always been a believer. So there's my dull, boring testimony. And I always like to remind people there's nothing dull or boring about passing from death to life. No matter when it happened. It's never dull. It's always glorious. If you were saved at a young age or as a child, as a teenager, sometime later, you are a new creation, a new creature. And the old things have passed away, it says. Behold, new things have come, he says. Conversion to Christ, spiritual life from the death, dying with Christ, rising to a new life in Christ. Dear ones, it marks a 180 degree turnaround. When Saul of Tarsus was saved, converted, born again on the road to Damascus, he, he made an iconic statement for the ages. When he comes to know Christ, it says in the inspired text in Acts 9, 6, it says, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you ever think that way when you, when you came to Christ? Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? My pastor, when I was in college, he told me, he remembered, I actually don't remember submitting this, but he actually kept it, a prayer request. My first Sunday at his church, I dropped a prayer request in there, and it said, please pray that God would show me what he wants me to do with the rest of my life. Because I didn't know. It's a Christian, what am I supposed to do now? If you had told me I was going to do this, I would have thrown up on you. <laughs> it's like public speaking, I'm not doing that. No, not a chance. When people are born again, their old man is crucified with Christ. He dies, she dies, and then it's, well, Lord, what do you want me to do now? What do you want me to do now? The old version of who they were, that person's agenda, their goals, their ambitions, their affections, they're suddenly reoriented, rewired from self to Christ. Everything changes when we're made new creatures. The way we look at our job changes. The way we look at our friends changes. Many present friends will quickly become former friends when a person becomes a new creation because you're not going to walk in the counsel of the ungodly anymore. And many friends that, that uh, they didn't have will quickly become their friends. Now you're part of the Christian church and now you have brothers and sisters all over the world. The way we look at our marriage changes. The way we look at our goals and life changes. The way we deal with sin and ourselves changes. The way we deal with being sinned against by others changes. We learn to be forgiving. We learn to, to extend grace and mercy 
in the same way that God has extended it to us. The way we look at money, the way we look at our talents, our gifts, the things that we're naturally good at, it all changes. Well, Lord, what do you want me to do with all this stuff now? What am I supposed to do with this? You know, Peter, Peter wrote about the glory of conversion in 1 Peter chapter 4. And, you know, Peter himself remembered his former self. He remembered what life was like before Christ. And he said, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries, in regard to these things, they, your former friends, they think it's strange. They think it's weird that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. So when you become a Christian, now you want to be godly. You want to be holy. You want to be good. And the people you used to run with say, hey, you're evil now. While trying to be good. The new creation in Christ, the justified adopted child of God, will be disgusted at all that they used to do, all they used to live in, all that unrepentant sin and wickedness. Among the multitude of new things about being a new creation in Christ is this. There's the, the glory, the glory of this, is the new desires for holiness that were not there before. Have you ever noticed that? You, you come to peace with God, and now you're at war with everything you used to love. That's the ultimate footprint of the grace of God. It shows that the grace of God has really been there in someone's heart. They stop trusting in their works, and they believe in, and they trust in the finished work of Christ alone for their salvation. But they're also going to have an accompanying desire to be godly, to be holy, to walk in God's ways, to love the church the people of God in this world, to have fellowship with brothers and sisters, and they'll want to evangelize the lost. Notice the end of verse 17 there again. You see it? A little bit better translation of that would be, behold, all things have become new. All things have become new. Everything, without exception, is now new. We died with Christ. Bondage to sin, died with Christ. Peace with sin, died with Christ. The new life that we now have declares war on all that remains of the old self and its sinfulness. It declares war on it. Before God made us new creatures, we were at war with God and enemies of God. Before God made us new creatures in Christ, we were at peace with sin and we were friends with sin. But when that shattering moment comes where irresistible grace breaks through and changes that heart of stone to a living, breathing heart of flesh that wants to be godly and wants to repent and wants to come to Jesus and be saved, we're at peace with God that we were once alienated from. We, we become his children. We become his loving, affectionate children. And the sin that we once loved and served and were friends with suddenly becomes our enemy for the remainder of our days. That which we once loved, sin, we learn to hate. Remember what Jesus said about that? Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters. He always only loves one and hates the other. Someone has made a new creature, that's reversed. Now they love God and they hate sin. That which we once hated, God, truth, Christ, righteousness, we learn to love and we long to serve. It's a change in a person's life. Listen, it can only happen supernaturally. This new creation, this is the new birth. This is what it is to be born again by God's spirit. 
It's something that only God can do. The new birth, being born again, born from above. That's what this new creation is about. And you know, Jesus taught the world in John 3 verse 8 that only God does this. He said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who was born of the Spirit. So think about that. Look at verse 17 one more time. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now point number two, verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Saving faith in Christ alone, repentance unto life, a new heart in the place of a dead one, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a sense of poverty of spirit that keeps us clinging to Christ for our salvation. Those are fruits which do not grow on any trees in this world. Those are fruits that do not grow on any trees in this world. They are produced only by God. You see verse 18 again? You see the opening phrase? All these things are from God. The new creations God makes out of sinners and the passing away of all the old things, all of that is from God. Man plays no part in it. He doesn't assist in it. God does this in the heart of his people. The initiative to bring about reconciliation comes from God. Now, look at the rest of verse 18. God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, dear ones, that is an astonishing statement. When you sin against someone, if you grossly sin against someone, who has the obligation to go make it right? The person that sinned needs to go to the person that they know they sinned against and go confess and ask forgiveness. And in this scenario, we are the ones who have offended God. God is innocent. We're the ones who willfully, stubbornly, hatefully, defiantly, deliberately disobey him. And the initiative to bring about reconciliation is supposed to come from the offending party, not the offended party. We should have gone to God and repented and sought his forgiveness and favor, but we didn't. And you know what? Apart from him coming after us, we wouldn't because we would never have a desire to. Before God came after us, we were the willing slaves of sin, devoted bond servants of evil. Our desires were entirely, hopelessly curved in on ourselves. And there was not and never would have been any desire whatsoever to make things right with God. God, the offended party, reached out to his beloved church in order to do all that was necessary at his own cost, at his own expense, to restore our fellowship with him. When did God reach out and bring this about? While we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, it says. Listen to a couple more passages from God's word. Just listen to these. Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. When did that reconciliation take place? While we were still his enemies. 
Ephesians 2, 3 through 5. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It was God, but God who took the initiative because of his great love with which he loved us even while we were hating him, while we were still his enemies, while we had no interest in him at all. He came to us and reconciled us to himself through Christ. The offended party took the initiative. God restored the relationship between himself and us so his new creation could be realized. That's how great the love of God is. You know, at the time of Jesus, at the time Paul wrote this, the Jewish people at the time, the religious among the Jews, thought it was man. Man alone had to take the initiative to reconcile himself to God. And he had to do it through prayer, through confession. They did not understand the true depths of sin and its impact upon them. The only reason that any person ever has a desire to pray or to confess sin to God or to repent of it or to believe in Jesus is because God has first loved them and God made them a new creation. If God doesn't do that first, no man will ever have any true desire to come to Christ or be saved. And so listen to it again. Let's see verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now listen to that. God gave us, all Christian people, the ministry of reconciliation. All Christian people everywhere who are new creations, who are born again by God's spirit, who believe in and trust in Christ alone for salvation, they have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And so the gospel is ours to proclaim, to share, to preach, to give away to people, not to edit or modify or mess with. And I want to encourage you all to think of something very important here. Please consider this. Throughout my entire life, I have heard gospel preachers and pastors say and preach and pray that every Christian person needs to be out there preaching the gospel to non-Christians everywhere, on the streets. And yet, I'm pretty sure that most of you are not going to head out of here to downtown Kingsport and start preaching on the street. Yes, we all need to be ready And some people have that special gift that they are just going to go out there and do that. We should be willing to do that. We should push ourselves to step out of our comfort zone. However, it's not everyone's calling to preach the gospel on the streets to sinners. But everyone can still be an evangelist. Since God has committed to the church the ministry of reconciliation, and that means that every Christian has been committed with that message, the saving message of of grace from God, reconciliation with God, we're all supposed to be involved in doing evangelism in some way, right? And we all have to be. If we're, if we're not, we're sinning. I read a book years ago called Effective Evangelistic Churches by a guy who's not reformed. His name is Tom Rayner. And he did a ton of research just trying to see what are churches doing that are the most effective in bringing people to Christ and keeping them. Like, not, not the, the altar calls where 800 people go forward and then there's no one going to church in three years, but like real conversions. What are those churches doing? And he did all this research. And as I was reading this book, I was expecting to hear all sorts of things about 
Vacation Bible schools, street witnessing, Bible clubs at schools, passing out tracts, all of which are good and we should do. I was expecting that to be the thing. It's, it's got to be some gimmick of some kind. But you know what the number one means of evangelism still is? By far today, listening to sermons. It's still the number one. It has no close rivals. No close rivals at all. Attending church and hearing sermons. Many years ago, I read another book. It blew my mind by a church historian named Kenneth Scott Lauterred. He wrote a big two-volume set on church history, and he also wrote a little book on the history of world missions. And he says, there has never been a time period in church history where the church grew more than it did in the first three centuries. And there is not a single evangelist of note in those first three centuries. So what in the world were they doing back then? And he points out, Christians back then had integrity with their money. They had integrity in their jobs. When they dealt with people, they were kind, they were gracious, they were hardworking, they were the best employees anyone ever had. And you know what they did? They invited people to church. (laughs) And they heard people preach. And that's how most people became Christians. And you know what? It's still true today. So if you're like, I'm not, I can't, I'm not going out in the highways and byways and trying to talk. I'm so introverted and shy, I can hardly talk to myself in the mirror. I'm not doing that. I can't do that. But I tell you something you can do. You can invite people to church. And you know what? It's still the most effective means of evangelism. That blew my mind reading that book. I thought for sure it's going to be some cool new gimmick. I need, we need to get a guy wire so I can like ride a zip line to the pulpit or something. <laughs> and it was, no, sermons. Sermons are still the best way to win people to Christ. My father came to know Christ from listening to a preacher preach. So God has given the ministry of reconciliation. So you want to be an evangelist? Invite people to church. And be here for church. Be a part of the church. Why is the pulpit still the most effective means of evangelism? Because God, Titus 1.3 says, manifests his word through preaching. It is the divinely ordained instrument by which people are brought to Christ. All those other things, they're wonderful. Let's do them. Let's pass out tracts. Let's do after school Bible clubs. I'm not, let's not do BBS. Let's do other stuff. Um, unless someone really has a vision for it, in which case you have my blessing. Go for it. But listen, the ear is what God has ordained. Faith comes by hearing. Romans 10, 17, hearing by the word of God. 1 Peter 1, 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. How are we born again? The gospel. You hear The gospel. And what's the best place to hear the gospel is where it is preached in church. You know, God had the prophet Ezekiel. It's one of the most dramatic prophecies in the Old Testament. Prophet Ezekiel has him look over the valley of dry bones. A valley of dead people. Dry bones. And it's the people of Israel in this vision. And God says to Ezekiel, looking at all this vast amount of skulls and femurs and rib cages and bony hands, they're all piled together in a valley. And he says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? Remember Ezekiel's response? Lord, you know. 
And here's what happens. God tells them, I want you to preach to them. Ezekiel 37.10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says Yahweh, God, behold my people. I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. I will place you in your own land then you will know that I the Lord have spoken and performed it says the Lord what is this that we just read that is almighty God making new creations how is it done through the proclamation of his word you want to be an evangelist invite people invite people to church invite people to church What's the means by which sinners are born again and made new creatures? Hearing the word of God. What's the best place they can hear the word of God? In a worship service where it's honored and preached. That's why the pulpit has always been the most effective means of evangelism from day one. And that's why inviting people to church is one of the most important things you ever do as a Christian. It brings non-believers within earshot of the word of God. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. And this is the word by which you were born again. The gospel, the word that you heard, born again by the word of God. Look at verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So I want to tell you all something, please. Don't hear this and think, oh, here's one more thing for me to feel guilty about because I don't go out into the streets and I don't preach on the streets and do that kind of thing. Dear ones, you want to be a great evangelist, grab people and bring them to church. Bring them to church. Just invite people to come to church and hear a sermon. It could be the next Charles Spurgeon could grow up in here. Of course, he wouldn't be a Baptist. A Presbyterian version of Spurgeon would come out of here. The next great preacher could be made here from hearing the word of God. Let the hearing of the word of God do its work. I remember hearing the story about a, a, a Big Ten football coach years ago who was not a Christian. He was a total pagan. And he had one player, one player that would just read his Bible in the locker room. And the coach walks by, kind of rolls his eyes. Why are you always reading that thing? And the player said, why don't you come to my church and find out? So he did. And he got saved that Sunday. Isn't that easy? Is that young guy, was he taking seriously his Duty as an ambassador of reconciliation. Yes, he invited the guy to church and it worked. He had to sit and be quiet and listen to a sermon and God saved his soul through it. Let the hearing of the word of God do its work. The pulpit, it's always going to be the primary way that non-Christians are made new creatures. Okay, look at verse 20, point number three. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I want to encourage you all, be urgent. When you talk to people about the gospel, or if that's not, you're not as good at that, when you invite people to church, be urgent about it. Be urgent about it. I want to tell you all, death does not wait for anyone to be ready for it. Death does not wait. 
And this is the only life you will ever live. And when it's over and eternity starts, eternity is a long time to be wrong. Christians, we're the very mouthpieces of God. God calls to the world through us, be reconciled to me. Mankind needs to know his starting point in life. And most don't understand this. We do not start out as friends of God. We need to be reconciled to him. When two people are enemies, we don't describe them as having a friendship or a relationship or being on good terms. We say, yeah, those two people, they're enemies. They need to be reconciled to each other. And people need to know you are not the friend of God by nature. You are a child of wrath by nature. We have eyes, but we cannot see. We have ears, but we cannot hear. The unregenerate man is dead in his trespasses and sins. He can no more believe than he could repent. He is a willing, happy, content slave of sin. He has no interest in repenting, no interest in being reconciled to God. But the voice of God goes out nonetheless. Be reconciled to me. Be reconciled to me. Remember what Jesus said to those who were weary and heavy laden over their sin? Matthew 18, 28. Come to me, he said. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God calls to the world. Turn from death. Turn from hell. Turn from rebellion. Turn from evil. Come to me, and I will give you reconciliation. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you the gift of eternal life. I will adopt you into my family. Remember the prodigal? Remember the prodigal out there feeding the the, the pig slop and longing for the pods? That the pigs were eating, it says there in that glorious parable, Luke 15, 17. But when he came to his senses, he returns to his father. And what does he do? He confesses his sin. And he's brought back into the father's house as a son. And that brings us to the end. The beating heart of the gospel. Verse 21. You see it there? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. So think about this. Jesus knew no sin. Unlike Adam, unlike all of us, Jesus knew no sin. Even Jesus' enemies were not able to prove him guilty of any wrongdoing. Jesus' judge at his trial, Pilate, pronounced Jesus publicly, repeatedly, to be innocent. I find no fault in him. This man's done nothing wrong. Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus was like us in every way except sin. 1 Peter 2.22 quotes from Isaiah 53.9. Think about this. Think about how glorious this is. Jesus' mouth is said, there was never any deceit in it. Can you imagine knowing someone who never lied, ever? And there was no deceit in their mouth. Jesus knew no sin. He was morally perfect and sinless his entire life. He was and is the only man about whom God the Father could ever truthfully say, in you, I am well pleased. God can't say that about me or you unless we're hidden in Christ. Then he can, because we're united to him. But this one, this sinless one, he became sin. What happened at the cross? God the Father laid our sins upon Jesus and he was legally treated as if he had committed them all. When I was younger, I learned this illustration. Someone showed me this illustration. So let's say that this was a detailed account of every sin I've ever committed in my life. 
I'll say this is everything wrong I've ever done in my life. Every disobedience to my parents, every smug comment I ever made, every hateful thing I ever did, every person I ever wanted to hurt in my life, all the lust and pride and envy and anger and stealing and everything else. And this hand is me. And right now, this is where all this sin is. This is Jesus. He has no book of sins. He has no record of transgressions. And the old prophecy from Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, verse 6. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And now, do I have a book of sins any longer? No. Christ bore the curse of them at the cross. God made him who knew no sin, who has no book of sins, to be sin in our behalf, to be punished in our behalf, so that we could be released and go to heaven. You see how clear, how simple that is? The just for the unjust. Are you reconciled to God through him? I pray, I hope you are. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. My whole life from conception to casket is imputed as a whole to the Lord Jesus of the cross He is treated by God the Father accordingly. We receive and rest upon him and nothing else for our salvation. That's what we're celebrating here. The body and blood of Christ. This is a testament to the fact that you and I had nothing to do with saving ourselves. It is the accomplishment of our Savior. God made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. So that in him we would become the very righteousness of God by justification and by that legal transfer of his righteousness into our account. That's the gospel. Are you reconciled to God? If you're not, I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this wonderful chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this great meditation upon death and upon the glories of what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross. May our hearts rejoice in it together as we take communion. And I pray if there are any here who are not yet reconciled to God, that they would turn their back on their sin, turn their back on their works, and trust only in the finished work of him who knew no sin, who was made sin on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.